Andy. Hi, Your blood work came back this morning. I'm going to come back in a few minutes and talk to you about it. All right? I'll be right here. Listen closely, because you might miss it in this scene from Philadelphia. How do you feel? I feel pretty good. Great. Make a fist for me? Another fist. Once more. Gonna have to start looking for veins in your feet, sweetheart. Patience, darling. Okay. Did you notice it? Notice what? That carefully placed interaction between a clinician and a patient who is quickly running out of veins to draw blood from. Yeah, but why would that matter, Violet? It matters because it is likely the only scene in the entire blockbuster film of Philadelphia that even approaches the topic of intravenous drug users in the AIDS crisis. Clinicians often had to be creative when finding veins in IV drug-using patients, and this scene clues us into those interactions. Oh, I see. And it matters, because IV drug use was particularly in America's biggest poorest city, a big reason why Philadelphia's AIDS rates was so high. The fact that the film's producers included that brief and easily forgettable scene is very revealing. There was, and I argue, still is a lot of stigma around drug use and AIDS. In fact, the fact that there are no speaking parts and no identifiable IV drug users in the movie just perpetuates the silence and shame around drug use. But, as you say, Drug use is one of the biggest ways that people began to acquire the disease by the late 1980s and 1990s. Yes. In fact, this scene in Philadelphia is revealing because as NPR and WHYY reporter Elena Gordon covered a few years ago, many of the extras in the film were patients with AIDS and were involved with Action AIDS an AIDS service organization that Jim Luttrell and Anna Forbes, who we met earlier in the series, were a part of. Gordon interviews both Philadelphia's director, Jonathan Demme, and an extra named Sue Ellen Kaler. Philadelphia wasn't just made in Philadelphia. The film was made with the people of Philadelphia, too. Here's Demme. I wanted very, very much to employ people with AIDS as extras or any other aspect, because it was very, very hard for people with AIDS 20 years ago to get jobs and what have you. Sue Ellen Kaler is a petite woman. You can catch her sitting right behind Denzel Washington and Tom Hanks in a city hall courtroom as an extra in the movie Philadelphia. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury. Do you swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth to help you, God? I do. His employers discovered his illness. I was surprised that they do um, have the camera on me for quite a few minutes. There's a bunch of people, HIV positive, standing in line, all wanting to be a part of the movie. Jonathan Demme himself later uh, just went down the line of people that were wanting to be extras who are HIV positive and just said, okay, you come here, you come here. Sue Ellen Kaler was one of them. Like the Andy Beckett character, she grew up in Lower Marion on the main line. We would all sit around saying we've got to do whatever is necessary to stay, you know, stay alive so that when they do discover that breakthrough pill, we'll be alive. About 50 extras in the film had HIV, some with visible signs of the disease in that clinic scene. 
But within a year of the film's release, most had died. According to Gordon's reporting, Kaler's life at the time of her interview was calm and peaceful, a far contrast to the volatility and trauma of her childhood and the relationship with her former fiancé, who she says contracted HIV while caught up in drugs. Absolutely right. This is just another example of how shame and stigma around IV drug use and HIV transmission, quite literally, is included within the frame of AIDS narratives, but is rarely given screen time and speaking time, so to speak, in this movie. Yes. In our very last and final episode of The Other Streets of Philadelphia, produced by Fidel, Violet, and Margaret, we're taking a deep dive into finally giving voice to IV drug users who advocated for services and giving more attention to the crisis among IV drug users in Philadelphia. Our journey to examine the voices of IV drug users shows why some AIDS activists increasingly strengthened their voices around economic inequality and housing insecurity, things that are related to race, gender, and sexuality, but are by no means exclusive to them. Introduction plays. Hello and welcome to this episode of The Other Streets of Philadelphia. I'm Violet Rose Collins. And my name is Fidel Buama. We're here to talk about the relationship between intravenous drug use and AIDS. This episode, we do want to say, may be triggering to some viewers, keeping in mind that some of our viewers may be in recovery. We want to acknowledge that right off the bat, If you are not emotionally prepared for this conversation right now, feel free to come back later. If you are not sure, we have the words of our oral history subject, Roy Hayes, to set the mood of our podcast. I'm 67 years old, you know, living, you know, with funeral divides over 30 some years. Uh, T-cell is a thousand, which I could be dead, you know, but I realized I keep fighting. You know, I've you know, been able to go to uh, four, four international AIDS conference. You know, able to stand up front of thousands of doctors, scientists, and tell them to break that language down because people could understand it. That is Roy Hayes, our oral history subject, a recovered IV drug addict and AIDS patient who has dedicated his life to helping victims of the virus. Sometimes I realize that, hey, uh, uh, I get tired, you know, but sometimes I get God got me here for a reason, you know, and, and that's why I do what I need to do. That's why, you know, I chain myself to the White House fence. And, I've done all these things, not just the bad to get in the paper, you know, just shows that, you know, that it's things that we need to do. And I find out right now is sometimes things, sometimes people are so selfish, you know, I hear people say, I got minds, but you realize that people sure is dying from HIV, even though people could live a long period of time, but we still have a fight. During this episode, we want to explore Roy's life and address the roots of some of the issues that he faced in his journey. We will shed some light on the relationship between housing insecurity and drug abuse. 
the negative effects of policing identity, and the importance of community and organizations such as ACT UP Philadelphia and We the People. At the end of our episode, we'll have a dedication to some of the people who died. From um, West Philadelphia, you know, um, my grandparents uh, raised me. You know, my mother had uh, eight, I had eight brothers and sisters. My mother died when I was eight. And uh, she, she died from reverse uh, TV because she uh, had uh, twins, and when the twins died, then a the, the year later, she had triplets. So she died from that. And uh, why well, I said my grandfather raised me, because my, grand, my, my father uh, went in my life. Roy Hayes is a man who would be labeled as a gay black man in his community, who struggled through trauma due to some religious experience in his life, an incident of sexual abuse in his youth and drug experiences throughout his life. He is known for his activism in the AIDS community. He was a part of ACT UP, as we've mentioned before. Like, I remember when I was eight, I was uh, sexual, but that's about one of the deacons in the church. And, and these are some of the things that you didn't, couldn't tell nobody. You know, cause I remember he said, if you tell somebody, you're gonna kill me. So that went on for about a month, going back and forth, you know, he done what he want, you know, at the, at the child years old. And um, so, and back, back then, I, I guess I, I had identity crisis, you know. You know, if I was gay or straight, you know, and come from a religion family, you know, you know, being gay was, you know, it was abomination. You, going to church, it's going to be one that, we went to church mostly, it seemed like every day. Grandmother was a minister, came from a very religion background. So, be able to have a child, anything happened, you know, in my life was really was hard, you know, and also I remember, again, when I was 12, I had a brother who was a little older than me, alcoholic, and he used to, to when he got high, you know, he used to call me a chump and everything, and he used to uh, uh, have sex with me, and then again, you know, I couldn't tell nobody, so, you know, he was coming up as a child, um, that haunt me. Despite Roy's challenging life, he maintains a rare and precious perspective on being able to live a happy and fulfilling life with the virus and life in recovery, a voice that is extremely rare within the Black community. This outlook is one element of this magnetic quality that gives hope to many people fighting AIDS. By using himself as an example, Roy is doing what the health officials and the government have failed to do. And that idea transfers into his activist methodology. I remember part of his oral history file when he was a case manager at ACT UP. Uh, when one of his clients came in and was like, I just need money for a refrigerator. He gave them a check. Uh, I want the listeners to hear it in his own words because I can't do it justice, and it's probably my favorite clip. Check, and the people say, "Hey, you can't give these people the money to the refrigerator." Because a lot of mistakes that I made 
But to me, look, this person HIV, he need a refrigerator. This person need money for his bad her son. They say, you can't use this money, boy. You know, and later on, it, you know, was, you can pay for it, but that's, that's how, you, you understand what I'm saying? You know, it's something when somebody come to you and you, you ain't got no money to bury your son and you HIV positive. You, you understand what I'm saying? But the, the city and the state, they don't realize that because you got to realize that uh, money for certain that. And it was a really some hard decision to do. It's interesting, you know, he was told, Roy, you can't really be giving money out. It doesn't look good. And his opinion on the matter was simply they needed the money. Exactly. It's radical care. That is that we, as people, can use to help others. We had so many apartments that people who were subsidized, you know, uh, could live there, you know. And, uh, we had so much. We had a doctor. We had people could come down there and get their uh, T-cell count there. We had a doctor used to come down there once a, uh, once a week and see people for free, free health care. You know, to uh, uh, follow up and fight is we uh, to act up Philadelphia through really people. Fight is one of the amount of one time shopping. So you could, you gotta realize that when people uh, don't, uh, uh, if you get people a lot of time, a lot of time poor people or people with HIV and everything, you know, you give them a fur, you tell them to go to the, the dentist. Oh, uh, we have a dentist here. You, uh, people go to nutrition, we have a nutrition here. If you want to go to a drug program, we have a drug program here. If you want a case manager, we have a case manager here. You have a library to reach up stuff right there. We have a project teach, you know, teach outside. We have all that here. One side shopping, that's all came through the idea of we the people. People don't like to go to different places, you know, or people, uh, 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 we have people here who go to the appointment with people and follow up on people. You know, because some people still live alone. You know, so we, we had that. This was the Bible came out of We the People. You know, you know, and me and Jane talk about it a lot. We would like to have a drop-in center. You know, and she, she working on that because we really need a place for people to come. With all the resources required to receive proper treatment in one place, people with AIDS are able to address all their problems faster. The more dispersed the resources are, the more effort, time, and money it takes to get better. Especially for people in Black communities, they are wrestling with income inequality, racism, housing insecurity, stigma, among many others. Roy understands this deeply, perhaps from his experience, and he's translated that experience to help people He's a genius. You know, when people don't have houses, they're going to do any need anyway to get something to eat. It's just how it goes. So we talk about the epidemic, you know, people live a long time, but people are still getting this. Roy really has been someone who has been through all this, and he understands the struggle. A lot of homeless people, when they have the virus, uh, they are unable to care for themselves. They are unable to go and find the things that they need. That's why this one-stop shop approach where people could come in and figure out everything in one place winds up being really beneficial. And 
helped to heal a lot of people when they were suffering. And I guess that's a really good point that highlights the need for needle exchange programs. Oh, New York was the first of a needle exchange. We were part of Philadelphia to start that with needle change, you know, get people clean needles, you know. You know, the people got to realize that we get people, even though when that came out, you know, we don't just say, tell you clean needle, but make sure that when you get clean needle, give that person a choice if they need to come to treatment. They can. But you can't make anything like me. You know, I was in and out of this fellowship, so I got ready. But the day is you, you find out that needle change do work, you know, because people is going and getting the clean needle. People is picking up the, the clean needles and stuff like that. People felt that, you know, are we encouraging drug use or not? And Roy is able to explain to people that it's better for them to be given the right resources to stop the transmission through dirty needles and to provide them with clean needles so they can cope. Uh, that's because... This stuff is hard. Dealing with the world with all those factors is hard. Living life is a difficult experience that everyone needs help with sometimes. Exactly. We dig into Roy's past and we see how he had been policed ever since he was a kid. He's been struggling with identity, you know, struggling to be himself. And drugs naturally is an avenue that he took at one point, right? He was a man who was policed all his life, a man who saw how hard it was on the other streets of Philadelphia. Research suggests that individuals who are homeless, living in marginal conditions, or lacking permanent access to safe, secure, and private personal space suffer from a substantial burden of mental illness physical disease and disability. Studies of homeless individuals, typically from urban settings in North America, have identified elevated levels of morbidity and mortality. You know, being an addict, sometimes you want to get high and higher. You figure that if you use, you could, all your problems go away. You know, you thought just for that moment, you know, so then I get it by being in and out of the institution and all. Uh, Felt like crap, hustle right down this neighborhood here, you know, in the park, you know, all the things that I did have, um, you know, I lost, so, you know, my life is, you know, uh, try to go to treatment, and then uh, what happened is I saw the using from reefer to cocaine, then I saw shooting to, to try to introduce you to heroin, I saw shooting heroin, and I guess my uh, life saw really going down. You know, and then um, I tried to get clean and really again go on long-term treatment. Although suffering from high rates of chronic and acute disease, homeless individuals have inferior contact with the healthcare system and typically experience low rates of preventative and ambulatory care while accounting for high levels of urgent care. People with AIDS are disproportionately affected by housing insecurity because of the place many people with AIDS exist in our society. Part of that problem is AIDS being called the gay white man's disease. It created an avenue for many black people to be uninformed and to help in the spread of the virus. This narrative made it harder to educate the black community on AIDS, its nature, how it was spread, how to combat it, and most importantly, how to live with it. With the least knowledge and resources to fight AIDS, black people naturally suffered the most. 
You know what? I think I heard about it really clearly for myself when, when the doctor came in and told me about it. You know, you know, because I always thought with the right gate disease, you know what I'm saying? You know, not me, you know, I mean, not me, you know, I tell you, you know, with the white gay disease, you know, and, you know, you know, I couldn't get that. And, you know, a lot of people uh, thought that, you know, especially Afro-American, you know, but find out that so many people, you know, during the history that this disease been around a long period of time, you know. The lack of allocation of resources to these people is disturbing. And the reason behind this is buried deep within the American system, which has failed to address issues of race. The problem with housing security, economic inequality, police brutality, amongst many others, is rooted in race. So it's no surprise that minority groups, like black people, suffer the most. These factors would push communities, like the black community, when it came to AIDS. I remember speaking at a church and and, and, and the minister didn't tell you who I was, but as soon as he said, hey, you know, this is uh, uh, Roy Hayes, you know, from, you know, we the people suffering and even with the, you know, they went to violence and stuff like that, people used to start running and start washing their hands. And that was really horrible. That was really horrible when I went to church and, and people used to, mothers used to tell me that the pastor told me to send my son away, you know, because he got that prey. You know, and that was really hard. You know, even though somebody, you know, I couldn't understand that, you know, remember HIV, how you could prepare people to die, you know, because people didn't want to die alone. Within these communities, there's a strong stigma around people who identify outside the norm. These individuals wrestle with a world that refuses to accept them as they are, making them uncomfortable in their own skin. People who should be accepting them, like family, friends, community leaders, religious leaders, are the ones policing them, creating tension and confusion for such individuals, which a lot of times can be extremely overwhelming and unbearable. This pain causes a need for a coping mechanism, and unfortunately, the most accessible for people in these communities is drugs. These substances, they exist, and they are neither good nor bad. They either come from nature or are extracted from nature by man. And I think that it, there is a lot more evil in selling a drug like fentanyl or heroin than there is in taking them. For me, this puts agency in the hands of the people involved with the substance, making it a matter of people taking action than some substance that has no will of its own, but simply a chemical makeup that affects the chemistry of our brains. I want it to be known that this is a slight reordering about how we normally think about drugs. It is supposed to place agency into the hands of the addicts something that has not been done on a large scale before. The story of drugs, AIDS, and addicts is one that doesn't show up very often. We have firmly established through our oral history testimony of Roy himself that he made himself impossibly important a fight for people with AIDS in Philadelphia. So why hasn't everyone heard about him?
This podcast series has talked at length about how people outside of the expected norm were impacted by AIDS, how people different than the cascade white man reacted to the AIDS epidemic. In all honesty, this is new work, and this is one of the problems with entering new territory. Roy Hayes does not have a large amount of material out there, and as a direct result of how our culture has portrayed AIDS, that has resulted in Roy Hayes not getting the attention he deserves for all of the wonderful work he did. I think it's really telling that Roy Hayes was chosen to be an oral history subject. It was a good move for just these reasons. Remember the point of the project down at the Wilcox really is to bring people like Roy Hayes, like Rashida, to bring them to the forefront of our understanding of the AIDS epidemic. It was honestly really shocking to me when we learned from our experts that Roy Hayes is just underrepresented. Which is why you had a chat with John Andrews to talk about the testimony. Uh, right, so let's take a listen to that clip. So you're saying that in Roy Hayes' case, this instance of archival silence is because of the way his activism took shape, because of all of the things that he did in these executive committees that were behind closed doors. So um, I think that might be that might be one reason, but I just I, I'm not sure um, that is a possible explanation for why someone, you know, would not appear in news sources. Um, now, it's possible that if we had if we had, you know, if we went through the uh, business records of ACT UP Philadelphia, that we would find more information about about Roy, but they're not yet online. It's hard to believe that there is so little information out there about somebody who was so important and involved in groups like ACT UP. But at the same time, it's important to note that just because there is an archival silence, it doesn't mean the story is over. Yeah, when I spoke to John, he elaborated on the fact that Roy isn't a frequently noted person, but he dedicated so much of his life to working with ACT UP. And I don't think that the archival silence we are seeing changes how important Roy really is to the city of Philadelphia. Speaking of ACT UP, what do we know about this organization in the current day and age? Is it still running or did it disband as AIDS activism died down through the last 20 years or so? That's a good question. During my conversation with John Andrews, I was curious about the same thing because, again, it was very challenging to track this organization's movements in modern times. Here is an audio clip of our conversation about the current status of ACT UP. Wonderful. And we have one last question that's more, uh, that's a little bit out of Roy Hayes' story, but is still important to it. Um, do you know what ACT UP, the organization that Roy Hayes spent a huge amount of his time with, do you know what ACT UP looks like in the modern day, if it even still exists? So ACT UP very much still exists. Um, it is not as large of an organization, um, uh, perhaps as it was during the height of the, of the AIDS crisis. Um, but ACT UP really remade itself after the development of protease inhibitors. 
and um, decided to really uh, dedicate their efforts to um, to people living in poverty, to housing issues, to people of color, um, to the issue of AIDS in Africa. Um, so it still exists today. It meets um, it meets during non-pandemic times weekly uh, at St. Luke and the Epiphany, where it has, I think, maybe always met. Um, and during the pandemic, um, they use uh, one of our uh, Zoom accounts and have Zoom meetings. Um, so they continue to do work. And, you know, they, their issues are um, definitely, certainly include HIV AIDS, but also go, go beyond that. Um, to deal with things like poverty and housing. Probably today, they are certainly dealing with issues related to the COVID-19 pandemic. Amazing. Thanks for talking about Roy. Well, I'm grateful. I'm a father of We the People and Actor. It wasn't for, it wasn't for me walking in that door, I will not be here today. Roy is an amazing guy. We need to get more stories like this out, and we need more people who care and are willing to dedicate themselves to healing the world and helping people. It's becoming increasingly rare to come across people like Roy in the world, and I think that's really bad for humanity as a whole. The virus is still affecting so many people. To think that discrimination based on AIDS has ended is untrue. In part, because of any of the systems that we've talked about. We still see these injustices taking place today, right? In the city of Philadelphia over the summer of 2020, there were multiple encampments of homeless people demanding that the city of Philadelphia address the issues that their housing authority has and who they serve. Uh, there are thousands of people on their waiting lists while they have these properties. It really comes to it really comes to a question of what we can do first for people with AIDS and second about homeless people or and second for homeless people and last but certainly not least for people in recovery or those still taking drugs. I think that to start, people with AIDS have tons of established charities where you can donate to AIDS research if you have the money. You can listen to a person with AIDS if you have the time. As for homeless people, there are tons of advocacy programs and shelters, though many of these programs have serious issues and limitations. Another thing you can do if you live in Philadelphia or any major city with a housing authority is to contact your representatives. Make sure they know you care about what happens to homeless people. And finally, as for people in recovery, I think that it comes down to a matter of understanding and recognition of their humanity. In this podcast, we perfect. In this podcast, we purposefully chose to privilege certain audio over other audio in order to push our ideas, and and we and we want to specifically privilege the narrative and voices of those using these drugs. And we want to specifically privilege the narrative and the voices of those using these drugs. And that's why I think that every member of this group was attracted to Roy Hayes' audio 
when we were given the initial blurb about each oral history subject. But I suppose this is where we tie things off. I'm Violet Rose Collins. And I'm Fidel Buama. And this has been another wonderful episode of The Other Streets of Philadelphia. We hope you had a wonderful week. Peace. Peace. Over, over there. Because like right now, it's, uh, the epidemic is the epidemic is not going to go away. So right now, we have to try to you know, save our, our, our young people. You know, because you know our young people, man. You know our, our young people is 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 going to be the one that um gonna make this stuff go away. When we all go home, when we all go home, the old heads gone. They'll have to go. They'll have to keep fighting. And if you got to, and what my thing is to try to keep more people fighting. This episode is dedicated to all the people who have died of AIDS and overdoses since the beginning of this horrible epidemic.